This is the Championship Chat Podcast, your home of news, views and debate from England's second tier. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Championship Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Ellie Jackson. I'm joined as always by George Smith. George, how are you? Not bad, mate. Not bad. How about yourself? Yes, all good, thank you. It's been a long week travelling with Rovers, having been to Stamford Bridge on Wednesday night um, for the Carabao Cup game against Chelsea and then a long old trek to Norwich on Sunday, courtesy of Sky Sports. Thank you for moving that to 12 o'clock. Managed, had to get up at uh, the crack of dawn to get to Carrow Road in time. But yeah, after doing plenty of miles, hence why we're recording this on Monday evening, um, it's been it's been good to have got a free week for a change before the big build-up to, to Preston North End on Friday. So yeah, I'm all good, thank you. Um, obviously, it's been a interesting weekend in the championship we've got six draws out of 12 now obviously on the pod we normally leave draws out well we touch on them a little bit at the end but we don't do our full match analysis on draws because it's a good way of just keeping the podcast under an hour and also there isn't always something fresh to talk about with every new team so we'd rather give you quality and not quantity however on this week's pod given there's only six games that we'd be talking about under that criteria we will be going a little bit more in depth on some of the draws particularly given that three of them um were quite interesting and three of them were very much not in the nil nil so gives us a, a a decent breakaway there um as always if you do enjoy our podcast please make sure you subscribe in your podcast feed make sure you leave a review and follow us on twitter at champ chat pod 24 closing in on seventeen thousand followers now so thank you for your support and a massive thank you, as always, to Cards Accepted for supporting the podcast this season. If you're looking to take card payments with no contract or monthly fees, make sure you visit cardsaccepted.co.uk. They provide a discount on the RRP of all sum of devices, so make sure you go and check them out. And over the next hour, we'll be bringing you our reaction to the big talking points over the weekend as Leeds United beat Leicester City, Southampton leave it late again, and the pressure cranks up on David Wagner at Norwich City. This is the Championship Chat Podcast. George, there's only one place to start when reviewing the Championship weekend, and that was the blockbuster fixture as it was billed on Friday night. Leeds United going to Leicester City and ending their winning run. Have we got a promotion race again? I think if Leeds had lost this game, the gap between Leeds and Leicester would have been 17 points, which even at this early stage of the season, you would have said was pretty insurmountable. As it is... Leeds went to the King Power Stadium and they got three points. And it was a really, really good game. Although it wasn't perhaps the goal fest that some might have expected, it was tactically very interesting. It was two evenly matched teams, two teams that were going toe-to-toe. And credit to Leeds for that. I thought they started the game really well, put Leicester on the back foot, pressed incredibly well from the front. Some of them looked really dangerous in that uh, left-hand channel for Leeds with the space that was being vacated by Ricardo moving into midfield as they do in the 3-2-5 build-up Leicester. And he looked most likely to score for Leeds. You'd also got Fatou going the other way, giving Sam Byram a torrid afternoon, particularly after he'd been booked, rattling the crossbar with a fantastic strike in the first half. And at 0-0 at half-time, you could have said it could have gone either way, but Leeds certainly probably the happy of the two in the way that they come to the King Power and not just held on, they'd asserted themselves and, and really gone at Leicester. Um, and they got themselves in front, of course, with the winner through Jorginho Routier, corner whipped in, Joe Rodon getting the first contact and the rebound then finished off by Ruta after a good save by Hermanson. And they defended that lead out really well. Meslier made a brilliant save right at the death from Keenan Dewsbury Hall's header, which looks like it's going right in the sort of gap between the the bar and the crossbar, uh, the, the post and the crossbar, should I say. And he closed that out. And I just thought Leeds were excellent. I thought Kamara was particularly great in central midfield. He's been a great pickup in the summer. The, the double pivot of him and Ampadu gives them great screening, great protection in front of the back four. And Somerville, as I say, was a constant live wire all evening in that right in that left-hand channel, in the Leicester right channel. And you look at the team, there's more there's more partnerships forming all over the pitch. I think Stroik and, and Rodon look pretty solid as well. Archie Gray did a good job at right-back, even though he's playing out of position to handle Steffi Mavididi. And it does feel like if someone's going to catch Leicester and Ipswich, and we said this a few weeks ago, so this is not acting clever after the act. We said this, you know, probably a month ago. Leeds United certainly now starting to click into 
second gear, third gear, and really starting to put some pressure. And now that the gap, it could have been 17 points, as I say, now it's 11. That's still obviously quite sizable. But if Leeds can keep picking up the points, you know, it's maybe not just Ipswich Town they're chasing down. Maybe it could be Leicester too. Yeah, definitely. It was a first and foremost, it was a really, really good game on Friday night. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And like I said in a in a tweet that I put on after the game, though there'd only been one goal, which suggests on paper it wasn't necessarily a brilliant game. If you watched it, you would have most certainly enjoyed it because it was high pace, good intensity to it from the very first whistle. Both sides, like you said, looking to win the game in the first half. It could have gone either way after half time, really, with the way the game was panning out. And obviously Leeds, they got that all-important goal with Ruter with the easiest goal he's ever going to score in his life. And Daniel Farker, I thought, from the very first whistle, had set up with the game plan there to get up Leicester and go and win that game. And Don Goodman, who was doing the commentary for, for Sky Sports on Friday evening, said he'd not seen anybody go and press Leicester like that in this first 10 minutes or so, anybody at all this season. It's different to the way Hull went there and won, wasn't it? Because... Way Hull went, they, they scored a good goal in transition on the current attack and then they defended for their lives. With no, and that's no disrespect to Hull or no slight on Hull. You know, that's how a lot of teams are going to have to play against Leicester. But Leeds have got that bit more quality. They did go after them. They did. They certainly did. They got at them after the very first whistle. As I said, every time Somerville got on the ball, you felt something was going to happen. Dan James was on the opposite side, really, really dangerous. Pirot pulling the strings in the 10 position, Ruter causing havoc as well. And I just, like I've said several times in the last few weeks, Leeds have got such a brilliant crop of attacking players where they're going to be able to get at teams regardless of who they're facing at this level. And that's been what we've seen in the last few weeks. They've won five of the last six games now. And they've only lost three all season, Leeds. They've only lost three of their first 15, which is really, really good going. And you've mentioned there about how potentially how important this victory was in perhaps just creating a bit of a promotion race and sending out a statement to Leicester and Ipswich that they're not going to have it all their own way. Leeds have now beaten both Leicester and Ipswich away from home this season, which shows that Leeds have got the quality to really make a statement at this level this season. Obviously, they went to Ipswich in August and won 4-3. Then obviously, of course, beat Leicester on Friday evening. But I think the thing that I like about Leeds in recent weeks has been the fact that they've had the ability to, to dig in find those nitty-gritty wins. Like, for example, they beat QPR at home 1-0. They beat Norwich away 3-2, that sensational comeback. They blew Huddersfield away just over a week ago. And then, even though the performance was very, very good on Friday night at Leicester, that margin of victory proves that, you know, they've got to dig in. They've got to find a way. So, Daniel Farker, all in all, has, has built a team here that's capable of being flamboyant and brilliant and gritty and determined. So, he's got a nice blend across the board. And like I say... Watched the game Friday night, really enjoyed it. Thought Leeds played at a tremendous pace and power, certainly the first half. Second half, even though they were very good still, they didn't play with such a brilliant thrust. They did seem to tire a little bit. Leicester obviously made a fist of it after going behind, nearly got that equaliser in the dying, dying minutes with that, that header that was clawed away by Melier, which is an unbelievable save, as you said. But like I said, after the Huddersfield game, Leeds have got such a rich talent pool up front which is going to cause nightmares for any team and Leicester of course have been on a remarkable run nine wins in a row they were one win away from equal Aston Villa's record of 10 in a row in the championship will Leicester go on bounce back I'm sure they will I think we'll see Leicester put runs like that together throughout the season they've got that much quality but Friday night was Leeds' night I think it's fair to say they were very very good they they deserved the win not late not not ladies night it was Leeds' night it was it was Leeds's night. They were absolutely superb. They played some lovely football, and like I said, when you've got the likes of Somerville, James, Piro in your forward areas, you're going to be able to do damage at this level. And Daniel Farker at the moment is fully justifying why he got that job in the summer. A few people doubted it, however, he knows what it takes to get out of this league, and this is without a doubt the best squad that he's ever had to manage at this level. Yeah, you're right. A few people doubted it, and I was one of them. Um, well, I, I wasn't going to say that. It, well, no, but it's true, and I'm happy to <laughs> say that I got it. I was wrong. I have been really, really impressed with the authority that Daniel Farker has managed to stamp on the football club in such a short space of time, considering the circumstances he came into post relegation. And you know, I, I, I thought maybe he'd bottled lightning a little bit at Norwich and coming at the right time 
with the right circumstances and things might just be a bit chaotic. But he's come in as not just a head coach, but a manager. And he's, he's really struck that authority on the club in a really positive way. He's unified the group, unified the fan base. And we know with the size of Leeds United that if you can get everyone singing on the same hymn sheet, you know, he's not in Marcelo Bielsa territory now, but they'll they'll eulogise you and they will they will follow you to the depths of the uh, of the sea, in metaphorical sense, of course. And it can be a pretty powerful beast once it's moving in the right direction. And Leeds United certainly feel like they're on the right track now. Southampton, they're moving in the right direction as well, George. They left it late again, but they beat Millwall 1-0 with a late winner from Ryan Fraser, the second time he's done that, having scored the late goal at Hull City earlier in the season. And with Leicester City and Ipswich Town, who will come on to dropping points, it's a chance for Leeds and it's also a chance for Southampton to make up the ground because it does now, in my mind, feel like that top four is probably the top four teams at the moment from the first 15 games we've seen. Obviously, that certainly didn't look the case a month ago with Southampton, but they're now giving up far fewer chances. They've, on a seven-game unbeaten run now, they've only conceded six goals in that time, two clean sheets, which doesn't sound amazing, but when you consider the, the goals they were shipping before this run, that's quite the improvement. And I do think, I don't think there's been a big tactical shift, but I think there's been an improvement in personnel. I think Taylor Harwood Bellis, who obviously was in the team during the poor run, but he'd just come in. He'd not really had a full preseason. He'd certainly not been with the group for very long. He was also playing on the left side, which I don't think is quite as comfortable. And little things like that can make a difference. So I think Bednarek coming back in, playing next to him, a proper centre-back, with no disrespect to Shea Charles, who was obviously playing as a makeshift defender. Um, when he's really signed as a holding midfielder. And it's given them more structure. And then he's found, obviously, a reworking attack, playing Carlos Alcaraz down the middle with Armstrong and Suleimana as split strikers. It's just working better for them. They've got more control and they look a better team for it. Now, I'm not saying it was a sparkling performance or a team that good enough to be in the top two. But what I will say is they're making teams... The teams are creating less chances against them and that's making the games more tight. And with the quality they have got in the squad and the quality they've got off the bench, they'll win more football games like that. It was a late winner, of course, which I do think, although you'd obviously rather win 3-0 and have the results sewn up, I do think that helps for you know things like team morale, bonding, and those scenes at the end with Russell Martin going over to the away end that's obviously in raptures having seen a late winner that helps form unity and that helps build um, a bond between the group and the manager. And, and that's going to be important in this in this, uh, in this this project at Southampton as it is. So the goal itself, you know, I think Millwall will probably look back and think they could have defended it better. It was quite easy for Armstrong to pick out Ryan Fraser in the second phase of that move, which is obviously um, not great in the dying seconds of the game. And it's probably a good time to play Millwall as well. The form at the Den's not been great this season. They've lost quite a lot of games there this year. And in the middle of changing manager, it's probably the right time to go there. But nonetheless, I think that fans have got every right to feel positive about Southampton right now. And, and this late winner is only going to keep building confidence and belief within the group and the fan base. Most definitely. It really is because when they, when they lost that game at Middlesbrough towards the end of September, which marked a fourth defeat in a row... We were starting to ponder if Southampton were going to be able to make the progress as quickly as many thought they would under Russell Martin because after the first four games, they'd taken 10 points. They seemingly adapted really well to Russell Martin's style of play. Even though they were shipping goals quite a lot, they were still scoring. And you kind of looked at them and thought, yeah, they, they look like they're going to really kick on under him. We said at the time, didn't we? It's the best crop of players that Russell Martin's had to work with. Then September came. And they lost four out of five during the month, ending the month with that 3-1 win over Leeds, which was seemingly a really key turning point because they've, they've beaten Stoke since then. They've beaten Hull, they've beaten Birmingham and beat Millwall at the weekend. A couple of draws with Rotherham and Preston in there. But I think the thing for Southampton, like you said there, after the way things unravelled for them last season, going through managers the way they did, the way they were relegated, there's a feeling that, that club now is just starting to find its feet again. There's a connection again between the players and the fans. Ryan Fraser, who scored the winner on Saturday, as you said, scoring an injury time winner for the second away game, running after his goal at Hull a couple of weeks earlier. 
I think the thing that you've got to look at with, with the Southampton team, which is bearing in mind what Ryan Fraser said in a post-match interview, there's a really good sense of harmony and togetherness in the team now. There's a real spirit and connection with the fans as well. And that seems to be pulling Southampton in the right direction. I think the fact that they went to Millwall, though they had to ride their luck a little bit, Millwall, certainly in the first half, they had chances, they hit the crossbar. They did cause a few problems for that Southampton defence and Gavin Bazuna in the Southampton goal. But overall, Southampton carried the greater threat. Kyle Walker-Peters looked really dangerous down the right-hand side from right back. Stuart Armstrong was just beginning to control things in the middle. And then obviously Ryan Fraser off the bench pops up with an injury time winner. So I think based on certainly how the second half went, it was a it was a deserved victory for Southampton. And like you've said, they're in really good form now. They're seven unbeaten. They've won five in that run. And they look like a team that have got the credentials and the quality to challenge for challenge for promotion this season. So they've got one game left, just as everybody else has, bar Rotherham and Ipswich, as you listen to this prior to the international break. Southampton at home to West Brom at the weekend. Not an easy one. West Brom in good form at the moment. We'll talk about them shortly. But I think if Southampton can win that one or certainly draw that one, heading into the international break, eight unbeaten, they restart that restart their campaign with Huddersfield away and then Bristol City at home. And that on paper looks like a good opportunity for six points. So with the way they're playing at the minute, confidence is up. I think Russell Martin will be quite pleased if they can go into this international break coming up next week on a run of eight unbeaten if they can avoid defeat against West Brom. So things looking very promising for them now at the moment. Still relatively early days in the season, but compared to where they were, say, five or six weeks ago, it feels like they've turned a, a really, really big corner. Yeah, absolutely. We should touch on Millwall as well because the one benefit of recording this slightly later, George, is we can give actual reaction to Joe Edwards becoming the new Millwall boss, um, England under-20 coach. And it's a big shift for the club with the uh, the recruitment and of this manager compared to what they've had before under Gary Rowett. Jones, uh, Nathan Jones and Edwards were the final two. He has got the nod. It's been confirmed this this afternoon. And he's been part of Frank Lampard's staff at Derby and Chelsea and Everton, for those unaware. He was currently in an interim role with England, uh, England's youth set up as the under-20s coach. Very highly rated. And it's really interesting for Millwall with the way that they're trying to sort of revolve the football club in the fact that obviously we've seen them invest a little bit more and also look at the data side in terms of going abroad, picking up likes of Zian Fleming, Kevin Nisbet, or be it only from Scotland. But broadening their horizons a little bit, I think it's fair to say, um, in the transfer market. And now they've shifted, of course, with the managerial setup as well, going for very much a, a tracksuit manager, a grass on the grass sort of manager um, to lead the next phase of the club. Obviously, they're under new hands as well after the, the owner died very sadly in the summer. His son's now in charge and a new approach for Millwall. So it's been re- going to be really fascinating to see how they get on. Do they have the squad of players to play the way that I would imagine a England youth coach would like to? I'm not sure they've got the centre backs in particular to play that style, but we'll see. You know, maybe that isn't how. Maybe he's going to adapt and play um, a bit more suited to the squad and adapt it over time and try and evolve evolution rather than revolution. But I'm excited to see what what this can do because Millwall has been taking forward step and forward step for a few years now. And this is, is a big step to them. And, and I think we've got to give them credit for trying to evolve and trying to ultimately better themselves. Yeah, I agree with that. It's something fresh. It's something new. I'm not going to claim to be an expert on, on Joe Edwards because I know very, very little about him. But I, again, like I've mentioned with other managers in the past, you don't work for your national team, albeit at youth level, if you've not got something about you. And obviously, Millwall have seen something in Joe Edwards when talking to him and, and under getting a getting a vision of what he wants to do and how he wants to take the club forward. And they've thought, we, we can buy into this. It's something a little bit different to what we've done in the past. Let's see where it takes us. Because Millwall fans had obviously become very frustrated with Gary Rowett's style of play. I think it was more on that side rather than the results where Millwall fans were getting really frustrated. It had just gone a little bit stale and they all agreed in the end that it was time for a change and a chance to try something a little bit different. And in Joe Edwards, it seems like maybe this is going to be something that's going to be that little bit different. So time will tell. Let's see what he's all about. 
I think it's probably a good thing for him, the fact he's only got one game before the international break. It then gives him a full two weeks on the training ground to to implement his vision that little bit more. Uh, his first game is on Saturday, Sheffield Wednesday away, which obviously they're going to be favourites to win, even though the Owls have been playing better of late. Obviously, still roots the foot of the tail, but Millwall will go there as favourites and Joe Edwards will be looking to get off to a winning start. But I think it's a good thing for him, the fact that he's probably going to have two weeks on the training ground without a game ahead of the resumption after the international break. Yeah, I think so. I think it's fair to say that. Let's go to the Sunday game now, George. Blackburn Rovers winning 3-1 at Norwich City, very much cranking the pressure up on David Wagner. Obviously, the game I was at, I think I'll take Blackburn and if you want to take Norwich, because Norwich probably the biggest story really after this game, but that would be unfair not to say that Rovers were really good in this and added the you know added plenty more misery onto Norwich, but they had to do that and they went to to Norfolk and did the job. They cut them apart in 15 minutes with goals from Tyrese Dolan. Really good movement from Dolan in between the two centre backs. Great first touch and a brilliant finish past George Long and then Sam Smodix giving way too much space. Norwich were really naive. Um, in the way they tried to press and Blackburn picked them off, particularly in that first 15 minutes and really good finish from Smodix for eighth of the season. He soon got his ninth in the 50th minute, putting the ball in the back of the net um, after a great cross from Andrew Moran, who's been a, who got a couple of assists in this game, having signed on loan from Brighton and Hove Albion in the summer. And the atmosphere was pretty toxic at Carrow Rope. It was really subdued before kickoff and then pretty toxic as soon as the first one went in. And then the second... We had a chorus of sack the board, um, Stuart Webber, it's time to fuck off, and David Wagner get out of our club, which all came within five minutes of each other after Smodix made it 2-0. So yeah, one win in 10, it was a toxic atmosphere, but for Blackburn, four wins out of a possible five since the QPR win just before the last international break. Very good for uh, for 50 minutes, and then they, of course, dug in um, despite having to have a massive reshuffle and being in an injury crisis. They could probably do with the international break sooner rather than later because they do need an opportunity to try and recover some players. But to be 10th after 15 games, I think it's pretty fair for where Rovers are at the moment. I think there was a run where they lost four in a row where they definitely deserved more. And I think they've definitely deserved to win probably four of the last five games as well. So I think they're probably in the right spot now, but big, big concerns for Norwich and I'd be very, I'd be very surprised having seen the atmosphere and seen how the game was on Sunday. If David Wagner makes it through to the next international break, personally, and if he does, I think he's on borrowed time. Well, we'll start with the positives. Really good result for Blackburn. Played some lovely football. Goals very, very well crafted, and they look like a team that are really enjoying themselves at the minute. They play some lovely, lovely football. It must be said and. The likes of Sammy Smodix, what a season he's having, by the way. He is really going up through the gears at a very rapid pace. Nine goals now, two assists as well. Got the joint most goal involvement, I think, in the league now. I think with Jack Clark, possibly don't quote me for definite on that. I know he's level on goals with Jack no, Clark. No, Smodix, Smodix, uh, Smodix is on 11 goals and assists and uh, Jack Clark's got nine goals and one assist. One assist. I didn't think there was much in it, um, but no, I'm really impressive also, in a start. You know, I remember, Clark's got four pens in that, whereas Smodix yeah. has not taken a single pen away. So, yeah, and another thing on Blackburn as well, which I think is quite impressive, is the fact that they've won four away games already this season. They only won seven in the whole of last season. They're halfway to equal in last season's points tally on the road already. Thirteen already. They've got twenty six last season. I've been looking at those stats today. Look a really good side, and like I've said many times, Yondal Thomason is improving that team week on week. They are getting better and better. Still a very young team. As for Norwich, the situation isn't great, is it? It really isn't great. The boos after the second goal went in, told their own story, really. And for David Wagner now, he he is clinging on. He really is clinging on. When, I, when he got the job, I thought it was a, a solid appointment, to be honest with you. I thought, did a very good job at Huddersfield, harshly sacked there. He's come back to England good experience, promotion on the CV. I think he's been let down a little bit in terms of recruitment in the summer. We said at the time, didn't we, the recruitment wasn't overly inspiring for a, for a Norwich side that on the whole, I've recruited very well in the last, last few years. But I think in that sense, he has been let down. But at the same time, as a manager, you have to get the best out of what you've got. And ultimately, that is not happening for Norwich at the moment. But at the same time, I think the players, based on Sunday's evidence from what I saw, 
need to take a fair bit of the blame. I thought the marking for for the goals was was non-existent, certainly for the second and the third. David Wagner can't control that. So I think looking at it, with the international break coming up, obviously as we're recording this on Monday evening, there's one round of fixtures left before the pause for the November break. Norwich away at Cardiff this weekend. Cardiff in good form, been very good at home this season. Personally, I think if David Wagner loses that game, that surely has to be it. I think it is a must-win game, fighting for his future going to Cardiff at the weekend. Because I don't see how Norwich can put up with this sort of this sort of record. But having said that, like I said a minute or so ago, I don't think that Norwich squad is particularly very good. I think they recruited really poorly in the summer. The, the, the profile of player they brought in was ageing players. And I don't mean that with any disrespect, but... When Norwich in the past have recruited really, really, really well, picking up gems like your Emmy Buendias, when all of a sudden you're then going, and again, I don't mean this any with any disrespect, when you're going to Shane Duffy and Ashley Barnes, for example, it doesn't look great. It feels like Norwich, if they're going to win a game of football or do something good, they are relying now purely on Gabriel Sara, who scored on Sunday, and Jonathan Rowe. It's, the, it's those two more often than not that are going to make anything happen. The rest of the team is all a bit flat and a bit stale. And I don't really think all of that necessarily is David Wagner's fault. Though, of course, as a manager, like I've said, you do have to get the best out of what you've got. So for me, I think this coming Saturday, Cardiff away, that could be his last chance to try and salvage anything of this. Because, like I say, them Norwich boos, after the second goal went in, they, they said it all. So I think failure to win this weekend, that that could be curtains for David Wagner. But he might just get one more one more game this weekend. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the thing with Norwich. You know, they've got players missing at the moment. Of course, they had to play young centre back Warner at, um, on Sunday uh, because of the injuries they've got at the back. But you look at the style of play and you look at their attacking sequences, and a lot of it is: can we get the ball to Gabriel Sara? Can he pull a rabbit out of the hat? Can we get the ball to John Rowe? Can he pull something out of nothing? And that's not sustainable. They've won six games out of twenty-five under David Wagner overall. It's one win in ten. And I'd be very surprised if Norwich City did not make a change pretty soon. Preston North End ended their poor run. They'd not won in eight games before the weekend, George. But they beat Coventry City in a five-goal thriller at Deepdale, winning 3-2. They went behind in this one to Hadji Wright, but got themselves level. And then in front, Dwayne Holmes with a really crisp finish to level the score. And then Osmajic, clean through on goal, just gets shoved in the back by... Carl McFadden. Now, I know it's not a lot of contact or a big push, but when you're running at that speed and that intensity, even the smallest of nudges in the the, the deliberate way it was done, uh, Stonewall penalty, of course, um, and Alan Brown converted. But the big strike, you'd be pretty annoyed if you're Osmaich. You threw on goal, you get pushed over and you don't even get to take the penalty. But he did get himself on the score sheet in the end to make it 3-1. Um, but had you right, made it 3-2 to get Preston back into the top six, an important result for them. Um, Kian Best came back into the team and played, from what I can tell, as a left centre-back, which was interesting. Obviously, he's been playing left wing-back, having broken into the team earlier in the season uh, before they signed Liam Miller, who's been playing there since. And he'd done a really good job. He's only just turned 18, the young lad. So to play left centre-back's a pretty big call from Ryan Lowe um, to put him in. And he performed, and it's not for the first time this season. Um, Miller obviously gives him a little bit more attacking for us, really, as a winger playing at wing-back. And I think in the home games, particularly at Deepdale, he wants that to give them a bit more of um, an attacking edge. So, good for Preston, because obviously they start the season great, then they've not had a, a, the brilliant, most brilliant run. And they're still in the top six because of that, because of the amount of points that they picked up earlier in the season. So, this was an important one to get over the line. Definitely. When you've been on a rut like that, you just need to find something, don't you, just to get you going again, whether it be a, a 5-0 win, a slender 1-0 win, a 3-2 win, whatever. And Preston were good value for that on Saturday against Coventry. They did play really, really well. And I think, to be honest, Preston have been, overall, they've been quite good this season, to be fair. I've already checked the stats. They're six points better off than they were after 15 games last season. So it's clear that progress is there, albeit slowly. They are building bit by bit. And I think Ryan Lowe deserves a lot of credit because the recruitment in the summer was quite good. Frockoy Ensign's had a really big impact. Osmaich is beginning to get himself in the goals now. And all in all, 
Deepdale's been a, a difficult place to go to for a lot of teams so far this season. So I think there's a lot of good stuff that's been produced by by Preston's players, Ryan Lowe, the management team, the hierarchy. It feels like they are moving in the right direction as a football club at the minute. And I just think, going back to the signing, say, of Osmajic and, and Froko Jensen, it feels like Preston, like Millwall similarly, are spreading their wings with their recruitment, doesn't it? It feels like they're, they're thinking outside the box in comparison to what they've done in, in recent years. And it's certainly paying off for them so far, if, if you ask me. I think the fact that they went, what was it, seven games without a win, it was a little bit frustrating. Eight. But they, they Seven, I think. I think it was seven. Oh. Just counting now, it was seven. Seven without a win. I think when you look at that run and compare what they had in there, yes, they were thumped by West Brom and Leicester City, but they competed with Ipswich. They were seconds away from from beating Southampton. They were edged out by Hull City by a single goal last weekend. So it's not as if really they've been out of many games that they've they've played that they've lost. They, they've been in several of those games. So it was only a matter of time before they did turn the tide back in their favour. And personally, I think Preston this season look a hell of a lot better than they did last year. Whether they've got the got it in them to, to go the distance and be top six challengers come the end of the campaign, time will tell. They might need a body up to more in January, that extra sparkle of energy and, and quality. But I think if you'd have said to any Preston fan approaching the the November international break that you'd be in the top six with 25 points, six points better off than this point last season, they'd have snatched your hand off. They had a really good start to the season. They had a little bump. Let's see if the win over Coventry on Saturday is going to be a win, a win that sets them going again and gets them on another decent run. You look at their their, their upcoming fixtures, what they've got. They've, they've got one more game before the break this weekend with a, with a, a trip to Blackburn on Friday night. Big derby. Could go either way. Should be a good game of football again. Then after the break, they've got Cardiff, Middlesbrough. They're, they're not easy fixtures. So a big crop of games. And I think the next three potentially could tell us a lot of where this Preston team is at because Blackburn, Cardiff, Middlesbrough all pursuing the same goal early in the season, which is the top six. Not necessarily saying they're all going to be there come the end, but at the minute they're all in and around that area of the table. So I think between now and the end of this month, we could learn a lot more about Preston. But as for the weekend in isolation, really good performance, really good result for Coventry, though. It's it's just proven a little bit troublesome for them so far this season, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Coventry, George, only won three games this season out of 15. I think they've been better than the points tally has said, which I, I said on, um, I think I said a couple of podcasts ago, but... You can only say that for so long and I don't know at what point do we start getting a little bit concerned. Obviously, you lose not just your best two players, but two of the best players in the entire division. If you look at the way that Victor Jokeres has taken to life in Portugal and I think Gustavo Harmer has been Sheffield United's best player this season in the Premier League. So these are, these are not just two of Coventry's best players, but two of the best players in the entire division. But Mark Robbins is not getting a tune out of the new signings. I think... There's not many teams that play a back three in the championship anymore, which is quite interesting. And they don't really have the players to move away from that if if he wanted to. You know, you've only really got Sacramento, um, who's a, a natural wide forward. They haven't really got anyone else. I suppose Palmer or O'Hare could play there, but it's not their best positions. So they haven't got that much they can change tactically, but it's not quite working for them right now. And I think they have moved away a little bit from the transitional style this season, a little bit more possession-based. And I'm not sure it's necessarily suiting. I suppose it does suit the players they've got because they haven't got Harmer and Gyokras who were so integral on the counter attack, but it's not yielding results. No, it's not. Not at the moment. But I think Mark Robbins is a manager that's got enough credit in the bank to be given an opportunity to turn this around. There is absolutely oh, I'm no. Not, I'm way. not for any reasons. No, 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 you're it, not. But I think like that, some but, people uh, may look at it and think. Hmm. Playoff final last season, currently just above the drop zone this time around. Do they need to change something in the dugout? For me, that would be the worst thing they could possibly do. Mark Robbins, for what he's done for that football club over the last few years, is nothing short of sensational when you think about it. There was always going to be a likely drop-off uh, drop off after losing those two players, as you mentioned there in Jokoraz, uh, Jokoraz, Jokoraz and Harmer. 
who were absolutely excellent last season and we waxed lyrical probably more than anybody about those two last season. But obviously at the moment, they're on a run of four consecutive defeats. They've only scored two goals in that time, which is a little bit concerning when you think they did spend a good amount of money on Hadji Wright and, and Ellis Sims. Hadji Wright obviously got a couple of goals at the weekend, which will hopefully, hopefully kick his commentary career into life once for all and get him on a good run now. It feels like a very important game against Stoke City for Coventry this coming weekend. Obviously, Coventry were, were hammered by Stoke in their last meeting at home last season back in March. It feels potentially like this could be a must-win game for, for Coventry City, not necessarily in the sense to, to boost Mark Robbins' chances of keeping his job. It's just in a sense to just lift morale heading into the international break because if they say they lose this weekend, they go into a two-week break on a run of five defeats in a row that's going to mean it's a very long fortnight until the season resumes. So it does feel like a must-win game for Coventry this weekend. I watched them against West Brom last Monday night and I have to say, wasn't overly impressed by the Sky Blues. Didn't think they played particularly well, but they had some good chances to score in that game and it just didn't seem to be clicking. So it felt like the chances were there, but they just hadn't got the confidence to finish them off. And like I say, Hadji Wright, not really worked out for him yet, but a couple of goals at the weekend... Hopefully that can can spark his um, spark an increase in his form levels. So we shall see. But definitely, Mark Robbins remains the right man for the job, one hundred percent. I think there is certainly scope for Coventry to turn this around and turn this around quite quickly. We've seen in the Championship just how things quickly can change. But the game against Stoke this Saturday, it, it feels like a big one that they really need to win, just purely to increase the, the, the mood around the club ahead of the break. West Brom have had a great time of things. They beat Hull City 3-1 at the Hawthorns. They were given a bit of a gift for the opener, that's for sure, after Jean-Michel Serri's wayward pass was pounced on by Jed Wallace and he fired that into the back of the net, into the bottom corner for 1-0. They did get themselves level from Louis Coyle with a great strike at the back post. Good cross from Scott Twine. But a quick double from Phillips and then Semi Ajayi um, got West Brom in control. It's now one defeat in nine for Carlos Corbran's side. Five wins in seven, three wins in a row. And defensively, they have been immaculate in some of that run. Um, I was looking at some of the underlying numbers and the metrics earlier. And um, West Brom have, um, I think in four of the last, four of those five wins, they've given away an expected goals of less than 0.5. So, we know how good uh, Carlos Corbrandt's Huddersfield team were in that season where they got to the playoff final once they got ahead. And it, it seems like he is definitely getting that sort of structure and buy-in from his players at West Brom where if they get themselves in front, they drop into that defensive shape. They're not really interested in pressing. They can do it at times, and obviously they did for the opening goal uh, that Wallace scored where Sarri gives the ball away. But they're very good at dropping into their shape, keeping structured and seeing games out once they've gone ahead. And, and that's been the sort of the fulcrum of this winning run for them. And when you consider all the things that are going off, going on off the field at the moment for West Brom, Corbrand's done such an amazing job of just focusing on the football. And I do think he's doing one of the best jobs in the league right now, pound for pound, when you consider all the off-field issues at the moment too. Most definitely. And I think in some aspects, their their form's kind of gone under the radar a little bit, probably because of the the way the focus of sort of us in terms of a, as content creators and as neutrals to the league, sort of looking at it and thinking, I mean, so much focus. Call me, a, call me a content creator. You know what I mean. Ipswich, Leicester, there's been so much focus on them too. Whereas those a little bit lower down the ladder have not necessarily earned as much praise as they should have been given. But you look at West Brom's recent form, They've been really, really good. Five wins in the last seven games. They've kept, what is it, five clean sheets in that run as well. Um, yeah, five clean sheets in that run. And I just look at West Brom and I think they they look like a really well-oiled machine. Everyone knows their roles. Nothing's sort of too fancy, but it works and it's established and they've got a really good manager in there. And you look at the players who scored at the weekend, Jed Wallace, Matt Phillips, Semi Ajayi, all experienced players, nothing too sparkling, but Jed Wallace, you know from him, even now at the age of 29, he is a player that you can call upon every single season to, to score goals, create goals. Matt Phillips, 
he seems to be getting better and better in recent weeks, aging like a fine wine. He's he's now at the age of 32, which which just goes to show it feels like he's been around forever, but he's still playing such a vital role in this West Brom team, pretty much playing wherever Carlos Corbran requests him to. So I think, all in all, I think Carlos Corbran, like you said, pound for pound, he's probably doing one of the best jobs in the division at the moment. Obviously, since he came in, which was just over a year ago, I think it was a year last week since he came in, or just over. It was, yes. It's been, it's been a gradual upward trajectory that the club has been on. They they were still in with an outside chance of getting the playoffs on the final day of last season, albeit needed a lot of things to go their way. This season, despite all the turmoil off the pitch, the objective had to be top six because of the squad he got and the expectation that comes with West Bromwich Albion. They have been a a Premier League club for many, many years in recent years. So I do think this season, it feels like there's an outside chance that West Brom could be up there this year. There is enough quality within that squad. And when you look back to what they did in the summer, they only brought in four players. That was all they brought in. And I think only three of them were, the, were the, for the first team. Two were loans as well. So it just goes to show what Carlos Corran was up against. But through all that turmoil, he's making it work and they're playing some really, really good football. Fifth in the league, they're only two points behind Leeds, which says everything. So, yeah, really, really good at the minute, West Brom. And like I say, the way that they they, they played against Hull at the weekend, who have been in good form themselves this season, deserves a lot of recognition because Hull are not a, an easy side to play against at the moment. But obviously Hull... Um, didn't quite demonstrate the art of playing it out from the back for the for the first goal that Jed Wallace scored. They gave them a helping hand and gave West Brom a bit of a boost to get the nose in front. But like I said, Hull, they've overall had a really good start of the season. But West Brom at the minute, looking pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Bristol City beat Sheffield Wednesday. Obviously, Bristol City currently without a manager, although we'll come on to that in a moment. I mean, this game hinged on a red card, didn't it, for Barry Bannon? I think it's the right decision personally, although there is a covering defender. It is a clear goal-scoring opportunity. If you look at the freeze frame as well, he's got an easy pass to his left for a tap-in for the, the Bristol City. I think it's Conway who's who's free, who's got who would have an easy tap-in if he rolled it over. Dawson's out of position. And the defend, there is a defender on the line, but I think it probably is a red card. It just looks a bit weird because it's not the sort of challenge we associate with a red card. But it's a clear goal-scoring opportunity. It's a poor pass into him from Dawson. Um, it's probably a poor decision from Bannon, really, because a player of his experience, it's more important to have ten men, uh, 11 men on the pitch and be a goal down, if that's the case, than it would be to obviously survive the red card, uh, survive the incident, although there's every chance that if you'd given away a penalty that the ball could go in anyway, or even a free kick on the edge of the area. As it did nearly go in, Dawson had to pull off a, um, a last-ditch save to keep it from going in. You're better keeping in, keeping everyone on the pitch. So I imagine Bannon probably thought that he wasn't going to get sent off for the, the nature of the challenge. But I don't really think Wednesday can have too many complaints about that. That said, I thought they, they competed quite well with 10 men and they could have got themselves level um, after Bristol City had gone in front through Rob Dickey. Now, Bristol City could have finished the game off and probably should have through Sam Bell, um, hitting the post with a bit of a sitter. But... Had it not been for a brilliant save from Max O'Leary to keep out, um, I know they said Stephen Fletcher then, to keep out Ashley Fletcher after Will Volks's, uh deep free kick, then Wednesday would have left with a point. The, the performances have been undoubtedly so much better under Danny Roll, Roll since he's come in, but they've been quite unfortunate by individual mistakes, by red cards, um, and they've only got one win from the four games he's had in charge. But the performances have been night and day. Unfortunately, Wednesday haven't got games to spare where they can play well and not get results. So that's going to have to change. But I thought it was probably the right decision in the end with the red card, George. Yeah, I think so too. It's in the laws of the game. I think the referee was left with little choice but to dismiss Barry Bannon. And to be fair, Barry Bannon didn't really make much of a fuss over it, did he? He didn't really get in the referee's face and sort of tell him that you've got it wrong, ref, and I should stay on this pitch. So fair play to Bannon for that. I think he accepted his fate without too much too much of a fuss, but the game itself, Wednesday again, just as they were at Plymouth, certainly in the first half, they were at Watford in their two previous away games under Danny Royal. Very, very competitive. They played the best part of an hour with 10 men. 
they looked quite good for the majority of it. First half, Wednesday were the better side, I thought. Masaba causing a lot of problems, drifting in and out. Uh, Jedi Kasama got his first start in the league for the club and he looked quite dangerous at times. But it's just that final spark for Wednesday, isn't it? They've not got the goals in the team and that has been the problem because, like I put on, on Twitter on Saturday night after the game, I, I said from anybody sort of looking from the outside, looking in, who's not a Wednesday supporter and not seen all of their games under Danny Royal, and you see the fact he's lost three of his first four, you'd think it's been a, a really, really poor appointment. No bounce, no no media impact. And that couldn't be further from the truth. The performance levels have been so, so much better. Though, of course, as a caveat, it probably couldn't have got much worse after how poor they were under Chisco Munoff. But you can clearly see there is a, a an identity and a philosophy that Danny Rurl is trying to implement with what is, no disrespect, a very weak squad for this level. I think it's fair to say the squad is not blessed with championship level players. There's a lot of championship experience in there, but a lot of them are past the point now where they're probably capable of cutting the mustard at this level, certainly above the position where they're currently in. So it certainly feels like January could be very, very important for Wednesday. But the big question is, of course, as it often is, what will Dapon Chansiri, the Wednesday owner, do? Obviously, since the last time we recorded, he released another bombshell of a statement, probably his best one yet, where he demanded the fans to stump up £2 million to pay the tax bill. And all of a sudden, he found the money and paid it himself within 24 hours of that coming out. Check which the was, back of the set email, it's always there. It might have done. It, it was another whirlwind 24 hours. But I think on the pitch... I think it's fair to say Wednesday are moving in the right direction, even if results don't necessarily suggest so. Danny Rail already very, very popular with the fans. They, they understand that this is going to be a process. It's going to take time. Wednesday cannot continue to go through managers like there's no tomorrow. They need a long-term plan. And it certainly feels with Danny Rail they've got that. As for Bristol City, uh, a good way to end what had been a difficult week with Nigel Pearson's exit obviously got the win, scraping it through Rob Dickey's goal in the second half. They had chances to finish it off, as you mentioned. They hit the post twice in a split second with one shot and then Sam Bell on the rebound hit the post, hit the other post with his effort. So Bristol City just about getting over the line. Was it a convincing performance? But I think a lot of the time when you're up against 10 men, it can be harder to find a way to win because of the way the opposition sets up and has to defend for their lives. So Bristol City will take it. They'll move on and see if they can build on it. But of course, it looks like the new manager, as we record this, not official yet, but he's coming in, uh, certainly a Manning from Oxford United, who I know, Elliot, you're uh, quite a, a big fan of, certainly from what he did at MK Dons, Oxford riding high in League One this season. Certainly a different direction to what Nigel Pearson probably had in mind as a sort of a golden oldie, experienced manager, Liam Manning, up and coming, but already got a good amount of credit in the bank for what he's done at MK Dons and now at Oxford. Yeah, it's been an interesting um, career trajectory for Liam Manning because I expected this sort of appointment about a year ago when he had such an amazing season at MK Dons and they finished third in League One with a, with what, 88 points was it in the end? Uh, Something like that. out on automatic promotion and not going up in the playoffs either, having been beaten, I think it was by Wickham and then Sunderland, of course, beat uh, Wickham in the playoff final. So... I'm not surprised. However, the, the route's been a bit strange. MK Dons then had an awful summer, lost the likes of Scott Twine. Harry Darling was sold as well. They didn't invest that money very well. And Liam Manning was sacked about seven months later with them bottom of the table. They did eventually go down under Paul Jackson that season. Um, so his, his stock had dropped a fair bit, it's fair to say. But then Oxford took a chance on him, sort of March time, I think it was this year kept them up and he's done a fantastic job of rebuilding that football club who were, you know, were, were really spiralling at the time and worried they might get relegated, um, having had a few years of, of fighting for the playoffs in League One. So he's done a great job at Oxford. They've, they've, they're obviously second in, the champ, in, in League One at the moment, trying to get back to the championship. And I saw someone earlier on Twitter sort of criticising or questioning whether Liam Manning should be jumping at the first sign of trouble. But what I would say is there was plenty of interest in Liam Manning when he was at MK Dons first time around. He stuck around at MK Dons and through decisions above him in terms of the recruitment, because he wasn't in charge of recruitment. You know, they've got a head of recruitment at MK Dons. They've got, a, I think it's a sort of a sporting director, whichever the, the, the official title is. And he ended up getting sacked seven months later. Football 
it doesn't work like that. I think we'd all love for managers to always stick around, but clubs are just as bad for pulling the trigger on managers. So I don't blame him for taking this opportunity. I'm sure Oxford United fans will be disappointed that he's he's going to make the move, but it's a big opportunity. Bristol City is a really big club with a, an owner that I know is splitting opinion with the fans a little bit at the moment, but he's invested a lot of money. It's a club that's got great potential, a newish stadium, and ambitions to be in the Premier League. So if I was Liam Manning, I'd make that move as well. And especially after being burnt a little bit at MK Dons and getting sacked seven months after, you probably could have got a move to the Championship. I don't blame him one bit. So I think this is a really progressive appointment from Bristol City, um, if it does indeed go through. And I'm intrigued to see how he he moulds this young group with with such exciting talent that they have got in their ranks. We will touch on some of the draws, George, in a little bit more detail. Birmingham 2, Ipswich 2 looked like it was going to be the first win of the Wayne Rooney era at Birmingham City. They were much better in the game. Jay Stansfield again continuing his fine form. Uh, It's really exciting to think the levels he might be able to reach this season, particularly now he's being coached by one of England's greatest strikers. But he's looked really good at the level. Um, He didn't score a a lot of goals in League One last year, you know, and he scored, I think he's, he scored at least one hat-trick, which obviously bloats the numbers a little bit from what he did get, but he's been fantastic since he's um, signed for Birmingham this season, so I'm really loving his development at the moment. They were a little bit fortunate with the own goal from Burgess, but then Marcus Harness, who came off the bench and obviously got what turned out to be the winning goal last weekend against Plymouth Argyle, um, and two really important goals to get a point for Ipswich, the first of which... Um, from close range, and then the second, a really sweet volley, bit of quality. And Ipswich are going to need their squad throughout the season, although Harness has not started that many games. He's been a, a very useful impact sub, and he's uh, scored four goals in his last, what, 200-odd minutes playing for, for uh, Ipswich Town, and, and it was a big comeback for them to keep the pressure on, having known that Leicester City, of course, had lost on the Friday night. Yeah, definitely. It would have been a really good result for Birmingham had they had they seen it through. It's going to be a good result for anybody to beat Ipswich this season with the way they're playing. So Wayne Rooney, he probably liked a lot of aspects of his team's performance, but obviously they just crumbled late on. And I think Kieran McKenna said that he'd, he'd spotted that the intensity Birmingham had set very early on in the game, that they were likely to tire in the second half. And that is ultimately what happened. So big credit to Ipswich for coming back. Just keeps that unbeaten run going. I think it's 10 league games unbeaten. And probably a good way to bounce back, even though it wasn't a massive priority for them, to that midweek defeat in the Carabao Cup at, uh, at home to Fulham. So, you know, back-to-back defeats probably would have just dented confidence a little bit, even if only slightly. So, really good way to, to bounce back. And obviously, if, you, if you're listening to this ahead of Tuesday night, we're recording this Monday evening, it was switching action again Tuesday night uh, away at Rotherham in that game that's uh, been rearranged from a few weeks ago. Yeah, six goal filler at home park as well. Plymouth free, Middlesbrough free. Um, goals are guaranteed at, at home park really at the moment. And Plymouth went from Definitely. one nil down uh, to two one up. Barley Mumba and a, a beautiful goal from Finnazaz, one of the best of the weekend, curling Plymouth ahead. But um, Coburn and Greenwood then flipped it uh, and got themselves back ahead. Josh Coburn's having a great run in the team at the minute, scoring goals. Um, I think the first one's gone down as a Lewis Gibson own goal, but the second one definitely his. And Sam Greenwood playing off that left-hand side looks to be a good fit. Sort of similar to the role that Aaron Ramsey played on loan um, last season for Michael Carrick, uh, more of a a midfield player, but someone who can score goals playing off that left-hand side to give them an overload in those central areas. Uh, And then, of course, Morgan Whitaker completing the comeback for Plymouth. So a free-all draw at home park and a really good game. Big one at the bottom, George, was Rotherham 1, Queen's Park Rangers 1. Of course, it was the first game of Marty Sifuentes' era as Queen's Park Rangers' boss. A very bold call to appoint him from Swedish side Hammerby last week. Um, looking at the starting eleven, Elijah Dixon-Bonner was a new name on me, thrown in for a first championship start in central midfield from the academy. Um, not someone I've heard much about before today, but he looked pretty good in that right central midfield role. Nearly scored. Um, but goal of the game was, of course, Elias Chair, who looked like he'd had a bit of uh, new life breathed into him, as the old adage goes. And let's be fair, from what we're reading about uh, Sifuentes' side, he's probably going to enjoy playing in this team a little bit more than he probably did under Gareth Ainsworth. Interesting to me that Chris Willock was recalled as well. Ainsworth was pretty reluctant to play the pair of them. Um, 
you know, Chris Willock's just one of the strangest drop-offs in the last 18 months from being one of the best players in the championship to someone who can't get in the QPR team has been really, really weird to watch. But hopefully he'll start to get some more regular minutes. Now it's not him or chair and they can try and uh, build him back up and, and hopefully he can impact the final third for QPR. Um, I'd say great goal from Elias Chair, but for all the you know positives that came out of it, again, it was a set piece that undid them, some soft defending, and Georgie Kelly with a really good finish from the back post, a tight angle. Rotherham's defensive crisis continuing. Um, Hakeem Adoffin had to play centre-back in this one. Daniel Ayala's just signed for them, but obviously he's not had a club since leaving Blackburn in, in, in June, so he's nowhere near fit to be playing regularly at the moment. So it was Sean Morrison and Akima Doffin at centre-back. So, yeah, I think this, you know, if Rotherham had lost this game, considering the defeat to Sheffield Wednesday last week, and it had been pretty catastrophic for them, and I think there would have been some pressure on Matt Taylor. But a draw, I think, keeps the uh, keeps the temperature just, just simmering rather than threatening to boil over at the New York Stadium. But um, a point apiece in this one. Yeah, QPR, I think, it, it, it's a big gamble, I think, this one to be honest with you, with Marty Sifientes, it is a hell of a gamble. We recorded last week's episode only a few hours before his appointment was announced. So in true Championship Chat podcast fashion, we uh, raved about how other candidates would have been ideal. Never mentioned Sifientes. I did. I certainly uh, called Neil Warnock as the ideal man for that job. But QPR have done something a little bit different. Long-term appointment. It's a gamble. But what managerial appointment is it? Every, what managerial appointment isn't, should I say? Every single managerial appointment's a gamble. And QPR have taken one in Sifientes, but they've obviously seen something in him that makes them think he's the right man for the job. No surprise to see the likes of Chair and Willock start the weekend. They're flair, creative, star players. And Chair comes up with a moment of magic, which we've been very used to seeing in recent years at this level. He's a brilliant player. And like you said, Sifientes seems like the sort of manager who's going to enjoy using him. So I think QPR, they'll be they'll be looking forward now and trying to develop that style of play and play some actual football rather than just hoofing it, you know, 40, 50 yards across the pitch and after the way Gareth Ainsworth wanted them to play. But I think the way Sifientes spoke after that game at the weekend spoke volumes about the type of manager and type of driven, motivated character he is. He was asked if he was content with a point to end the losing run. And he said, absolutely not. I'm a man that wants to win every single game. And that's what you want to see. As for Rotherham, I think one point from these two games against the, their fellow relegation rivals is a is a very underwhelming return. Really, really poor for them. They're in a They're in a rut at the moment. But having said that, as much as I understand frustrations against Matt Taylor are mounting, I think you do sort of a, a level-headed sort of zooming out and assessing the situation. You've got to remember what Rotherham United are up against in this division. Even though they've been... I think it was the manner of, of the defeat at Hillsborough in particular. It was. They were very, very poor. They were very poor. But I think overall, when you zoom out and look at Rotherham in isolation... Yes, they've been in the Championship a lot in recent years. They have been very familiar to this division, but they are still the small fish in the big pond, I think it's fair to say. Their resources financially are very, very minimal compared to other teams. And Rotherham, in a similar sort of way, I suppose, are kind of like Luton Town in the Premier League. They're not expected to compete there, but they're there on merit. So I think you've got to be fair and respect Rotherham in the sense that you've got to be You've got to gauge expectations realistically. But of course, the fans, rightfully so, like any set of supporters that any club would want, they'd want their team to be playing better football, winning games. There's still only five points adrift of safety. They've got a game in hand, which is tomorrow night as we record this against Ipswich. Could they produce a bit of a scalp? Rotherham, never easy to go to the New York Stadium. It must be said they gave Leicester a hell of a game earlier in the season. They, they beat Norwich when Norwich, yeah, when Norwich were flying at the start of the season. Ipswich beat them. So, and they drew with Preston as well, and Preston were on a six-game winning run. So, Rotherham do have the tendency to make life difficult for teams at the New York. Obviously, their away form is very, very poor. It's exactly a year this week since they last won an away game, and that is something that does need addressing one way or another. But if they can get a result against Ipswich on Tuesday night, then that's going to do almighty wonders for confidence ahead of the weekend and the international break. But 
I think Matt Taylor, yes, he would have hoped for better. He's encountered an injury crisis, but at the same time, you've just got to remember what Rotherham United are up against at this level. They haven't got the financial clout like other clubs have got and just staying in this division, whether it be in 16th, 19th or 21st or whatever, that is a hell of an achievement. It's still certainly possible, but they've just got to find a way just to find a little bit more consistency in their in their play. But of course, injury's not helping at the minute. No, you're right. There was 3-0-0 as well in the Championship, which is very rare. Um, Swansea nil, mm. Sunderland nil was the best of the three. A red card at pretty early on for Charlie Patino for two yellow cards and a missed penalty from Jamal Lowe. Sunderland, as you can imagine, had the better of the the play for given they got a man advantage for an hour. But Swansea did pretty well. Swansea, uh, Sunderland only had three shots on target, um, which showed how well Swansea restricted them, dug in all those intangible qualities that you want to see. Stoke nil, Cardiff nil was a, uh, a game where defences were on top and Huddersfield nil, Watford nil was a pretty turgid affair. And that marks the end of this week's Championship Chat podcast. I've really enjoyed being able to zoom out a little bit with not quite as much match action to have to pour into. It's been nice to go a little bit more in-depth on some of the teams that we've not had a chance to speak about on in the last couple of podcasts. So really enjoyed that. If you've enjoyed the podcast as well, please make sure you are subscribed wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review and follow us on Twitter at ChampChatPod24. And a huge thank you again to our sponsors, Cards Accepted, for supporting the podcast again this season. Make sure you go and check them out. Thank you for listening and we'll catch you next week for another episode of the Championship Chat Podcast. This is the Championship Chat Podcast, your home of news, views and debate from England's second tier.